0: Jackie French has been writing for over 17 years and has had 132 of her books published. She wrote her first children's book of stories called Rainstones in 1991 while she was living in a shed. She says it was probably the messiest manuscript that Angus and Robertson has ever received and accepted. She's been writing full time ever since. Jackie's latest book is called A Rose for the Anzac Boys about the war in 1915. She has also completed a children's book called Emily and the big bad bunyip jackie has written a historical novel for adults and several books about australia including to the moon and back tom appleby convict boy my Grand, the gorilla and the goat that sailed the world the true story of the goat who sailed with captain james cook she lives with her husband brian in the araluan valley in australia thanks for joining us today jackie my pleasure Now, tell us about your first ever book, Rainstones. When was that? And what made you decide to put pen to paper all those years ago? (laughs) Look, I had
1: been writing stories since I was six. I had been creating stories since I was three. But everyone from parents, teachers, guidance, counsellors had said, no, 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 dear, you can't make a living being a writer in Australia. This is a waste of time. (sighs) Um, So... I wrote for my own, which is not really the word, more, more compulsion. I think Def, definitely compulsion. Often it's, it's as though a story gets its teeth into your neck and isn't going to let go until you've, you've actually written it down and not just written it, but then juggled it and devised it and drawn a thousand threads together. And all of that was done in my extremely... Um, undecipherable writing. In fact, even I can't <laughs> decipher it, and I'm not being modest here because I am severely dyslexic, so I'm quite serious that very few people can read my writing. Right. Um, I scribbled in private during my first marriage where sort a large denunciation saying there is only room um, for one book in a marriage, and so I was <laughs> definitely not allowed to write a book until my first husband had. Right. Um, and so there were all of these Silverfish eaten, illegible manuscripts um, hidden away in drawers in the back of bookcases, etc. The marriage broke up. I was earning a living as a farmer, except I just had a complicated caesarean. There was a drought, the creek had dried up, and I was absolutely, completely broke. I needed $106.44 to register the car. I was living in the shed in a bush with um, no battery light, no running water, Um, well, no hot running water, but there was um, a tap and a shower outside. Mm. Um, Things things were actually pretty desperate, washing washing the nappies by hand and putting putting them on the fence. I didn't have money for childcare. Mm. And the only thing I could think of doing was sending... A story off. In fact, a friend who was a freelance author recommended I do that. So within a week, I had sent a story to the Canada Times, an article on natural control of scale to another defunct magazine called Hobby Farmer, and a story called Rainstones to Angus and Robertson, wow. um, now part of HarperCollins. And within three weeks, I had got calls from the editor of the Canberra Times, the editor of Hobby Farmer, both offering me regular columns, and and acceptance from Angus and Robinson. It was a short story saying, um, we're putting together an anthology, would you like to send us another story? Then when they received the second story, um, they suggested that um, it just be a book of short stories and that I write the rest of them. So suddenly, after all of those years, I actually was making my living as a writer. It was extremely sudden. Um, There's a story, though, that I often tell about how they came to look at the manuscript. Um, As many would-be writers know, um, publishers have slush piles. The often thousands of manuscripts that come in, all expecting um, detailed assessment and reply, and all too often simply isn't the staff for that and you get the manuscript back again with a very polite note saying thank you for sending us your manuscript. Unfortunately it did not fit in with our publishing requirements. Mm. Um, however, mine had been typed on an old typewriter I had found at the dump. I was I was typing sitting cross legged on the floor. My son and I shared the shed with a black snake called Gladys, a Wallaby called Fred and a Wombat called Smudge. It was a really old typewriter I'd found at the dump. I used to type sitting cross legged on the concrete floor and I don't know if you know how wombats mark out their territory. They they need droppings, usually on high points. And Smudge did not like the noise of the typewriter. He wanted to make it very clear that this was his territory. And every night, if I forgot to put the typewriter up on the wardrobe, he used to give a large dropping on it. Lovely. Which meant that as a combination of wombat droppings in the keyboard and wear and tear, um, the letter E didn't work. So when I sent the first manuscript off to Angus and Robertson, um, I had to fill in all the E's with BIRO. Now, added to which it was fairly yellowed paper I'd bought many years before. And as I'm dyslexic, um the spelling was what well could politely be called um extremely original. And I heard years later what happened, apparently someone pulled it out of the envelope, gave a shriek of laughter and sort of yelled, Hey everyone, look at this mess, look what someone sent in. Um, they said it was the worst spelt, messiest manuscript they had ever received. And in fact, they assumed it would be unintentionally hilarious. Only someone quite illiterate would send in something like that. So she sat on the desk in the middle of the office to read a bit aloud to everyone so they could giggle at it. And she read the first paragraph and she read the second paragraph. And then apparently in the office, she read the entire story wow. going out to everyone. <gasps> And that was why I had such a fast response, because mm. everyone in the office had heard it and had come to an agreement that yes, this was something that was worth well, at least it was worthwhile seeing if I could come up with something else. Sure. Like and so
0: what age were you by by the time this happened?
1: And the embarrassing thing is I can't really remember. I, I was <laughs> I was around thirty ish. Um One of the problems was that Angus and Robertson was actually then taken over by another company, which was actually taken over by another company, um, which are all now part of HarperCollins. Um, Quite unbeknownst to me, um, within about six weeks, they'd sent me an advance for the story. But then for the next few years, I kept getting further advances for the story, along with another letter saying that they had accepted the book. (laughs) And I think the book was actually accepted three times in all, though it may have been four. Mm -hmm. So even though it was accepted, it didn't come out for about four or five years. Mm -hmm. And in that time, I'd written a couple of gardening books. Um, I'd won an award for a a detective story. And in fact, I had got two other books in the pipeline with Angus and Robertson and a heck of a lot of others. Um, again, the the, the ones that had been just sort of lingering, eaten by silverfish in the chores, um, roughly put into shape. Um so really the first book that I wrote actually wrote after that was Walking the Boundaries. Um several others came out in between that, but they they were the ones that were really just sort of hushed off um as I that I'd written before. But with that and the um the income from writing about Kids in the Bush, um the stories in the Canberra Times every fortnight and the column in Hobby Farmer and then I, I very quickly got another couple of columns in other magazines as well. As I said, suddenly within three weeks I was actually earning a living as a writer and that's I've earned my living ever since. It wasn't a very good living, I have to say, in those early years but it was a hell of a lot better than what it had been before. Mm. Um, And it was, I think it was was about two years or two and a half years after, I think, that first acceptance, that I was walking home having bought a bottle of gin. Mm. And I suddenly realised, good grief, I had bought something that wasn't absolutely necessary without even thinking about it. Mm. And I realised, yes, that, um, yes, things, things, things had changed. And... Since that time, I've been extremely lucky that the books have brought in. I mean, it's still, it's always been um, my income from writing has always been the income from the family. And the last few years in particular, we've been lucky enough that the income has been enough to, to basically do whatever we want to do. Now, look, I have to say very firmly, I don't want to buy a mansion in Tuscany. Um, I don't want to buy a $150,000 car. Um, what I really do want to have is a reliable engine, four reliable wheels, and a car body that doesn't matter if learner drivers are it about um, or get scratched by Blackberries. Mm-hmm. But it has meant in the past few years, particularly with the money from... Um, overseas editions, that we simply haven't really had to think about money at all, which is a good position to be in. And it's something I would very much like to say, too, to would-be authors, whether they're 10 years old or whether they're 86, never feel that you need to be in Sydney, New York, or London to be a writer. In fact, a surprising number of writers give in the bush. Mm. Um Yes, Australia does not have a large book-buying population, but if your books are any good, they'll be sold overseas. You'll have an infinite market right across the world to sell your books. And, in fact, I think living in the bush is one of the best places to write simply because you have got the gossip. Yes. Um, books have to be about something, whether you're taking what you know and you're turning it into Alpha Centauri or, 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 or wherever. Um You need to have a landscape, you need to have a community, you need to have people that you know and watch. And often in the city, I think, people mostly mix with their peer groups. And there is nothing more boring than yet another book about a writer at a writer's festival talking to other writers. (laughs) The wider your knowledge of people, the soil, the landscape, the ecology... The wider your ideas, the greater your grasp on philosophic ideas, the more material you have to put into your books, the better. And in a country area, you know everyone. You know their secrets just as they know your secrets. You know all their wonderful skeletons. You do have to be very careful, not of defamation suits, but they actually don't burn your house down. <gasps> but having having, apart from that you get to know a far wider number of people with love and intimacy than I think you would ever know in the city. And it is the most extraordinary resource for writing, not just a resource for material for your books, but actually almost as background security. Um... Farming people understand writing, as one farmer said to me many years ago. You know, we're we're pretty much in the same job. I I, I produce sheep, and you produce books. Mm-hmm. They understand what it's like to essentially run your own business and run your own business from home, um, reading that hermit-like existence at the computer, and then needing human society afterwards. Um, the rhythms of life are very similar between farming and writing, and particularly at times like now, where actually I have to say um, my family is going through a very difficult time with my husband's illness and bouts of surgery, um, there is no way I could continue to write without the care and support of the community around us. Mm. And I'm very aware that the the valley, the, the people, the people and the place. Um, it is impossible to say how much I owe to them um, in the creation of the book.
0: Wow. Well in your books you've written children's books, gardening books, history books. and I understand you've written over one hundred and thirty two books.
1: Yes, but look, some of them have been very, very short books. (laughs) But still, how in the
0: world can you be so prolific?
1: Um, Partly because, as I said, there were an enormous number of manuscripts, particularly the gardening ones, um, were really written even before I started publishing books. I'd done the research. um, The material was there. It really just needed pushing together a bit. Mm. Partly, though, too, because a lot of the books are more short stories, particularly the ones for kids. Mm. So, look, in there I, w- I would still – I would cut the number down by about two-thirds. That still, of course, leaves probably about 30 or 40 books. Mm. <laughs> um, the answer to that is twofold. One, because I write for a living, which means I don't have to spend time commuting. I don't have to spend time earning money in other ways. Mm. Um, and I find it does take me three days to actually get into a book. So being a full-time writer really does mean you are enormously more productive than if you have to sort of fit it into here and there and what have you. Um, I also write in different genres, Mm. and that helps. I would go brain-dead writing more than one book in any particular genre a year. I couldn't write more than one historical novel a year. Right. Um, I don't. I could possibly do two picture books in a year. No, I couldn't. Actually, that's not true. Two picture books may come out in a year, but they will be one that I've written in another year. I could really only do one picture book a year right. as well, etc. Um, but it's almost as though the different sort of... Different parts of the brain. It is a most enormous relief too to go from something which takes, well, both tears and research, like a rose for the Anzac boys, where hour after hour after hour, going through the research material of letters and diaries from World War One, my husband would find me at tears at the desk, where I was trying to turn. What's? I know it sounds odd, but war is basically very boring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really day after day of face danger survived. Next day face danger survived. Mm. And things don't change very much day after day and year after year, particularly in World War One. So it was difficult to turn it into something which was compelling reading. So you actually wanted to find out not just what happened at the end of the book Um, But also what happened in the next page and the page after that. But to go from something like that, which was extraordinarily hard work, both emotionally and intellectually, Mm. to writing something like the Shaggy Gallery Times, which was basically just an absolute hoot, being the most absolute the ridiculous material I could possibly think of um, taking off um, local country newspapers. I mean, it was so much fun. Mm -hmm. And being able to go from one to the other, I think um, both kept my sanity, but also kept me writing. The other answers are, too, that I write compulsively. I write if I'm happy. I write if I'm sad. Um, When my husband was in surgery... I wrote, sitting by his bedside, I wrote, I have no idea if what I wrote will ever be used for anything, but at a time when I couldn't even concentrate to watch television or read a magazine, um, writing was the best escape, again, both intellectually, physically, mentally, as I could have. The final answer, though, is difficult to talk about. Um, My Brain does seem to work faster than the norm. Mm -hmm. I have to make a conscious effort to speak slowly. Um, I do tend to come up with a lot of ideas and I would need to live for many thousands of years to be able to do anything with all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to overproduce, whether it is working friends with so many avocados that they will have to give them away to at least half a dozen acquaintance or whether it is with books. But I am able to read very quickly. I can scan the book quite happily in an hour, um, which means I can research and absorb material extraordinarily quickly. And I also write extremely quickly and rewrite. What a gift. It's it's a difficult thing to admit, but yes, most of the answer simply is that I do process data, whether it's input or output, extraordinarily quickly Mm. anyway.
0: And when you say you sometimes need to use different parts of the brain to do different genres, do you find it easy or difficult to switch hats between, you know, children's and um, non-fiction and history?
1: <laughs> no, look very, very easy. It's not so much it's different parts of the brain as actually, I think, probably different parts of the emotions. Right. Um, it's not the brain that gets exhausted so much. I think it's the, it's, it's the emotional side of you, mm-hmm. um, of focusing just on a particular area. So no, it is it is an incredible relief to actually switch from one to the other, from from the series to the very city. And I do very definitely alternate between um, the series and the very city, or possibly a, a gardening update or something like that in in between. It. Mm.
0: Um, do you work on different genres within one day?
1: No, no. Mm-hmm. Um, one book at a time. Yeah. One book, and and then and then I'll work on on something completely. Absolutely, completely different. Is there
0: a genre you prefer more or enjoy more or find easier?
1: No, de- de- definitely not. Look, it's the same with reading. Um, I'm an eclectic reader. I, I, I like all sorts of genres to read. Um, it was just like food. I mean, it's like <laughs> sort of asking, what is your favourite food? Look, um, I love cherries and chocolate, but I'd hate to live on them. <laughs> um, I find it quite weird that writers are expected to stick to just one genre or for that matter just writing for kids or for adults
0: mm, but many do Pardon? but many do
1: many do and i find that odd um i don't know any writer who only reads one genre mm. every writer i know um well i just reading a whole range of genres and um there, there are books that you read when, when you're on an airplane and and um sort of light night swimmers or something like that. There are books you read at the beach, there are books that you read to actually sort of get absorbed in and swept away, both intellectually and emotionally. Um all of us who love books love an eclectic range of books. And so I I always find the question really, well then why do you only write one thought mm. rather than why why do you write um, many, many different sorts.
0: Well, what are you currently working on?
1: Um, that's always a difficult question because um, I'm inclined to talk about the book that I'm actually writing, but then that's not going to come out probably for, for at least a year. Right. So you never really know whether you should then be talking about the book which is actually going to come out next, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Yes. Well, your most recent book
0: then. Tell us us about your most recent book that's actually out that readers can read.
1: Uh, The most recent book is A Rose for the Anzac Boys. It is a book that took... Well, if I was going to say 3 years of research is not really true. It's more like researching for most of my life. Mm. But particularly in the last few years there have been a lot of um self-published or small publishing houses bringing out letters and diaries from World War 1. Yes. And for the first time there is at least a glimpse of the forgotten army, the women of World War 1, the official women. Um the, the nurses, um the VADs were recorded. But when I first started researching it seemed like there were hundreds, then thousands, and now I think probably more than a million. Um, most of the transport was done by French women with carts and trucks. If you just read the letters, um, they take it for granted that the transport, not of the officers, but of the men, were be by French women in trucks or carts. Um, but they would be a lot of the ambulances were simply French women with carts. There would be things saying, um, Um, French women brought stew pots out to us um, on the bank. Um, First hot food I had in three days um, because the army rations, again, if we're not talking officers, um, were were really bully beef and biscuit. And so much of World War I we have known through accounts of the officers. The conditions were very, very different from those of the men, um, both in terms of rations and accommodation. And so it's only now that the quite illegal diaries, because that they weren't allowed to keep diaries, um, are being published. And so we're getting not a different view of World War One, but a far more complete view. Um, a Rose of the Anzac Boys is based on the story of, well, there were four girls, but I've made them three in the book, and they were schoolgirls in England. I've made one of them in New Zealander. Um, 16-year-olds at the Advent of War worked school to open a canteen near the front lines for soldiers. And we're not just talking about soldiers going to the war. We are talking about the thousands of maimed, shell-shocked men with bleeding stumps, men that died Mm. in front of them, etc. And I saw a letter from one and it went something like, Dear Mummy, I hope you are well. Last night, we fed 10,000 men. We gave them each a bully beef sandwich, um, two cigarettes, and a pannikin of cocoa. Well, I had better go now, as we are rather busy. Give my love to Grandma, your loving daughter, Marjorie. Mm. And it's overwhelming. Mm. Um, it was also, too, reading... Um, the Alice B. Toklas cookbook. Um, she was the companion of Gertrude Stein and she wrote a wonderful book of recipes and just stories of the meals they'd had. And one of the one of the chapters was um, meals to which Aunt Pauline took us Aunt Pauline was their car. And again wonderful accounts of these gorgeous meals. Until you realise that Aunt Pauline was actually taking them around the battlefields. They were setting up um, supply camps for refugees. Mm. Mm. Um and you suddenly thought, look, what are these two totally unqualified women doing? One, um, Gertrude Stein couldn't even reverse. There is one wonderful scene in the book where, where they're having this absolutely wonderfully described meal, and um, an army officer comes in and asks Gertrude Stein to move her car if she's at the army. And could she please back it out? And she said, No, no, I could never do that. I am like the French army, we never reverse. <laughs> I mean, yes, not only were they completely unqualified, but they couldn't even buddy drive properly. <laughs> and yet there they were, organizing supply lines in World War I. Mm. And mm-hmm. I realized there is a hell of an untold story here sure. and quite extraordinary heroism, that um, the men in the trenches were often only there for weeks, though at many times the Australians were kept there for months. But these women were there for year after year with, with no break. Mm. Um, and so that's the that Rose for the Anzac Boys. It was not an easy book to write. I'm sure. um at times, I wondered if I should be writing it, as I said, with my husband finding me in tears and just saying, "Look, why are you doing this?" And finally, I realised it's not just a story about women in World War One; it is a story about how things changed for women. At the beginning of the war, these women, mostly upper middle class or upper caste women, were basically serving tea or doing flowers for the church. Um, the war was their university and their training ground. Women at that stage didn't have the vote in Britain. Um, women couldn't be doctors, they couldn't get university degrees. By the end of the war, they were an organized and unstoppable force. Mm -hmm. If you look at any of the campaigns from the suffragettes in the 20s through to the campaigns for free hospitals, hospitals for women and children, um, free libraries, free education, um, even eugenics, um, all of these extraordinary revolutionary ideas of the 20s and the 30s um, you find the same names in the committees mm. um the woman the women who fought other battles in world war one mm. um, and I realized I was telling a much wider story on one level. It is a very deeply personal story yeah. of one young girl um but it's in reality a much much wider story than that. Mm,
0: mm. What a wonderful journey for you!
1: It was a difficult journey, mm.
0: um, but rewarding. Wasn't
1: it, it? it was. Um, one unintended consequence was then that Harper Collins wanted another war book from me, mm. which I've just finished, um, "The Donkey Who Carried the Wounded." I'd actually come across information that told me where the man called Simpson's donkey had come from right. and also what happened to it afterwards. So it's an account of could from the point of view of a donkey and Parky from Simpson mm. and Parky from Richard Henderson, New Zealander, because many of the rescues subscribed to Simpson. Simpson only lived for three weeks and if you look at the dates of men who claimed to have been rescued by him, you realise that he, he he had been dead by that time.
0: Right.
1: Nice. Um, Henderson took over with the donkey, and even the photo that we think of as Simpson and the donkey, even the statue at the war memorial, when you look at it, because we've got photos of Henderson, we've got photos of Simpson, um, and we've actually got a photo of the donkey, but with Simpson's commanding officer, not with them. Um, you realise that the statue is had given New Zealander, Henderson. Right. Um, we've got an Australian legend about an Englishman um, with a picture of a New Zealand teacher reading a Greek donkey <laughs> on a Turkish battlefield. Oh, my. Um, and so it's from the point of view of the donkey from Simpson... From Richard Henderson, um, because I think it is time that we realise that when we talk about Simpson, and yes, he was a legend and and the most extraordinary heroism, but he was, we have let the name Simpson I think stand for the extraordinary heroism of many many stretcher bearers in in on that battlefield. And um and also from the point of view of um, a Turkish sniper as well. Um and again in doing that, um I was drawing on the material that I'd already gathered together in the diaries and what have you of World War One. But I don't think I will be returning to World War One for oh, wow. a few years. I think I've I think I've I think I've sort of come to the end, basically, before I can cope with yeah, sure, for, for, for a little while.
0: So, tell readers, I mean, to listeners, sorry, um, about your typical writing day. Do you have a certain routine or <laughs> or anything like that?
1: Oh yes, very much. Um, wake fairly early, um, go for a walk up the mountain um, and down the mountain, um, taking notes of. Um, Animals, animal tracks, what the wombats have been doing. Um, I've been keeping notes on wombat ecology for about the past 35 years. Mm. Um, that takes about an hour and a half. Come back, have a shower, quick breakfast to get to work. Um I will work till probably about 5 or 6 o'clock, but I'll take various RSI breaks to do everything from pick fruit and veg to dinner to maybe plant a tree or two or mooch around the garden, again, to pick stuff for dinner, to to cook lunch, to cook dinner. Um, Then um, Brian and I have dinner. After dinner, we usually watch a DVD, and I'll either proofread or most likely I'll answer letters. Right. While we're watching a DVD, um, it's a, usually a very a very predictable day. Sure.
0: Is it a yes. five day a week,
1: seven day a week kind of thing? Se- se- seven seven day a week. Yes. Right. But it within that, there'll, there'll there'll be trips to town. Within that, there'll be sort of afternoons where we just decide to plant trees. Sure. Um, there'll be there'll be times when we actually just go down and spend a few hours down down in the swimming hole. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not it's not as regimented as it seems, mm-hmm. but it is. It is a very, very um, predictable and routine life.
0: Well, you need that, otherwise you don't get things done, do you? (laughs) (laughs) So, and finally, what would your tips be to aspiring writers out there on how they can, A, improve their writing, and B, get published?
1: Think about the ideas, not the writing. Um, Every... Novice writer I have known, including myself, has paid far too much attention to their writing style and not enough to what they're writing about. Mm -hmm. No one ever turned a page thinking, oh, what wonderful imagery. I want to read another page to get some (laughs) other wonderful imagery. Um, Most readers don't care less what your writing style is like as long as it is clear um, and it's not obtrusive. Mm. Um, What they want are the ideas whether you're writing a thriller or whether you are just writing about the human condition. Um, concentrate on having something interesting to say rather than your writing style. Um, most novice writers overwrite, but that's often a function of not being quite sure what they're saying. It's the same if you actually look at academic writing. Mm. The writing which... Has got the most obfuscation, I can't really pronounce that, but you know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> um, is always where the author isn't quite sure about their ideas, so they're trying to sound terribly, terribly portentous and pretentious mm. um, by making it very, very convoluted. Mm-hmm. Um, if your ideas are strong and clear, your writing will also be strong and clear, and if your writing isn't, it's a clear sign that you need to stop writing and start thinking. So you need to have something interesting to say. Um, The reader needs a reason to read the second paragraph, the second page, and the second chapter. Mm. And the beauty of your writing is not going to do that. There has to be a reason for them to turn the page. Now, if you can do that, your book will be published because... If an editor is drawn inescapably from that first paragraph to the second paragraph, if the editor desperately wants to know what happens on the next page and the next chapter, if you have got the editor turning the pages in the sheer joy, exultation, and fascination, mm. then of course they are going to publish your book. There's absolutely no secret about getting a book published. If it is good, compelling writing with good, compelling ideas, your book will be published. Um, There is a real myth that it is difficult to get books published these days. It's not. Mm -hmm. We have now got desktop publishing. There are more publishing houses than ever before. It has never been easier to get a book published. It has never been easier to make a living as a writer simply because one of the things about the global economy is that your books will be sold overseas. Now this isn't to say we shouldn't protect the Australian literary scene, etcetera, etc. Cetera. This is a whole different kettle of fish that we don't want um overseas editions dumped in Australia. That that that's that's a quite different different um different thing. But it still does mean that there has never been a time when there have been greater opportunities for writers. If your book is being turned down, not by one publishing house, because many publishing houses really do have their list full, mm. but they've always got room for something that's brilliant. Mm. If your book is turned down by one publisher, it's probably not compellingly brilliant. If your book is, pub- is turned down by three publishers, it's actually not good enough. Mm. I know there are many, many stories about writers who are turned down by publisher after publisher and then it turns into a bestseller. The untold part of that, though, is that each time it was rejected, they rewrote it. Yes. So the book that was finally accepted and the bestseller was a different one from the book that was rejected. Um, And it's that rewriting that does it. Um, There is also, I think, a myth that it's enough to be talented. Talent is to a penny there are many, many people who have the talent to be professional writers. Mm. Um, but it's like being either, well, for that matter, a teacher or a brain surgeon. Um, no one would ever say, oh, yes, you have great, um, great great potential as a brain surgeon. Here's a hacksaw, cut, start chopping. They would expect you to work for a good decade before you actually got to do the surgery. But there is somehow this belief that because you have a talent for writing, then you can actually sit down and write a novel. Mm. And it doesn't work that way. You have to learn your craft. The earlier you start writing seriously, actually working at your writing, um, the sooner you are going to learn your craft. And that's the case whether you start writing at 10 or whether you start writing at 70.
0: Great advice. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Jackie. My
1: pleasure indeed.
0: Wonderful. ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.